0: Christadelphian Classics podcast brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Conviction and Conduct by Islip Collier, Part 2, Chapter 13 Preparation by All Things. This heading for the last chapter of the series suggests the idea of a recapitulation. In connection with almost any other subject, it would indeed be so, for after an author had dealt in detail with various methods of preparation, the final heading, Preparation by All Things, could only mean a repetition or general summary of what had already been advanced. In this matter, however, there is room for such a chapter without any need for repetition. The preparation of Israel is unique in this, for that all things work together for good to those who love God, all the work, all the activity of life, can be an offering to the Creator and a preparation of the Creature. It is not only in the labour directly inspired by a love of divine things that a service can be rendered, but often in work which seems to have no connection with the purpose of God, there is equal opportunity for faithful endeavour and the manifestation of love. The Apostle shows us that there is scope for rendering service to God even in working for a bad master. The evil should be endured patiently as part of a necessary training, and the work performed heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. The meeting on the first day of the week has sometimes been regarded as an antidote to a -a workaday experience, as if all worldly associations were evil and a special effort was needed every week to counteract their influence. May we not rather make it a time of self-examination to ensure that we're rightly exercised by adverse experience and so face the forces of evil that they're all converted into helps? In matters of physical development, exercise will always strengthen the muscles so long as it's not severe enough to overstrain them. And even if they are sometimes tested too severely and prove unequal to the task imposed upon them, it's far better to suffer some mishaps in the rough and tumble of life than for the powers to be atrophied through the lack of use. A child is not strengthened by its falls and may possibly be greatly harmed by them. Yet the muscles grow strong through exercise, which is attended by inevitable risk. And it's better to have a few falls than to remain feeble and useless. The Lord Jesus did not pray that his disciples should be taken out of the world, but that they might be shielded from harm and remain faithful to their trust, though living in a faithless age. When men or women attempt to isolate themselves from the world in order to cultivate a special spirituality, they are not acting in harmony with the Master's teaching and they do not develop a genuine piety. Their virtues are only of a negative kind and perhaps not far removed from positive vice. A blind man cannot be said to have overcome the lust of the eye, neither can a dumb man be praised because he speaks no evil. But a man in full possession of all his faculties may live in the world, yet not be of it. And by his positive efforts attest his faith in such a way to find forgiveness for his failings. In that great picture of the judgment seat, presented to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous are commended for their sins of omission. We're shown what is required by many shining examples. Men who manifested their faith by their works and who took their place in the world of action. They could rejoice or sorrow. They could abound or be abased. They could hold the reins of temporal power or be driven to ignominy and death. And in all their experience find some exercise to prepare them for the life which is to come. We are exhorted to work, not as men pleases, but as in the sight of God, doing all things heartily as unto him. This is a most helpful thought, supplying us as it does with an eternal object, even in the ordinary experiences of every day, and drawing us close to God, even while we are engaged in temporal pursuits. We require something more than the will to improve. Mind, like muscle, requires exercise as well as food. Sometimes people have been oppressed with the feeling that there's so small a part of their life which brings them into contact with divine things and they plead for more opportunity to serve God. They're like the shipwrecked men whose experiences furnish such an excellent illustration for preachers. A party of unfortunate mariners, drifting helplessly on a rudely constructed raft, half mad with thirst and with no land in sight, frantically signalled to a distant ship for water. A curt answer in three words fluttered at the masthead of the vessel. Dip and drink. Wondering at the strange advice, they tasted the water and found it fresh. The raft had drifted by the coast of South America and they were near the mouth of the mighty Amazon whose waters flow over the surface of the sea for many miles before they finally mingled with the salt. These poor voyagers, piteously pleading for drink, were all the while surrounded by enough fresh water to assuage the thirst of all the world. So it is with those who ask for opportunity to serve God. It is there all around them, and no work is asked of them beyond what they can perform. We might perhaps even establish a closer analogy than heretofore between the development of muscle and of mind. Athletes tell us that the gentler exercises give the muscles strength and finally equip them for the great achievements which merely display and test their powers. Perhaps it's the same in large measure with the growth of the mind. The great work is more in the nature of a test than an exercise. Our growth will find its motive power in the smaller events of life, the more prosaic but more frequent experiences of everyday effort, success and disappointment. Only those who do all these things heartily as unto the Lord will gain strength to triumph in the day of great trial, and only such will be chosen for any special work. The Lord Jesus himself laboured for many years in a very humble sphere before he engaged in the final struggle. He proved his love for God and man in the ordinary experiences of life before he manifested it in the perfection in his great sacrifice. In him we have the perfect example. It is possible to obtain a very clear view of what is required from the sons of God by taking the converse of a description of wicked men. It was testified of some that God was not in all their thoughts. Again, we perceive the condemnation as for a sin of omission, or at least the matter is put in this negative form. Righteous men have fallen, and sometimes it may be possible to point to a single instance of more glaring sin on the part of a servant of God than can be found in the records of many children of evil. When, however, men merit this sweeping scriptural description that God is not in all their thoughts, It avails them nothing that their offences have been mild in character or that records have been kind to them. There are cases where notorious sinners can be prepared for the kingdom of God more easily than some of good reputation. Repentant publicans and harlots go before hypocritical Pharisees. For the moment, however, we are more concerned with the converse of this description than with the indictment itself. It gives us an ideal suited to our present theme. If we should be numbered among the righteous, God should be in all our thoughts and then we shall find preparation in all things. There is nothing in this idea to impose a strain upon the mind. Nothing in the least degree related to that habit of thought which sometimes leads to religious mania and insanity. It is Preeminently characteristic of perfect sanity for intelligent creatures to recognize the Creator in all things and to give Him a place in all their thoughts. In times of suffering and sorrow, where it is possible to obtain any real consolation except from our Maker, when hard work and great effort are required, Where is it possible to obtain such help and inspiration as he can give? And in a time of rejoicing, surely it's only fitting and natural to recognise his goodness, since it is in him we live and move and have our being. Religious mania arises from a concentration of the mind on only one phase of religion and generally on the least important phase – Sometimes, indeed, it's the outcome of an intoxication which cannot be called religion at all. People doubtless find pleasure in the excitement and infatuation of revival meetings, but it's the pleasure of intoxication and, shocking as the criticism may seem, it might fairly be described as sensual. It has no affinity with the pure religion and undefiled, which manifests its faith by its works in the ordinary duties of life. The ideal was present in the Old Testament. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Opportunity can be found in every day, even under the most prosaic conditions and in connection with matters which would never bring God to the minds of worldly men. We're constantly confronted by alternatives which put us to the test. It's often easy to appear just and merciful in the sight of men and yet snatch an advantage for self which is not legitimate. A while ago an observer expressed the opinion that nearly all men were dishonest at heart and were only anxious not to be discovered. The man who is determined to do justly in the sight of God will certainly find many possible tests of his profession every day he lives often in the little matters which seem insignificant in themselves, but which are invaluable as exercises. They're like the very easy movements with the pound-weight dumbbells which strengthen the muscle of the athlete, and no wise man will despise them. The most impressive words, however, come last in this simple creed. Walk humbly with thy God. This passage falls into perfect harmony with the idea of preparation by all things. If a man walks humbly with his God in all his progress through life, he is at all times under divine guidance and influence. Whether in sorrow or joy, at work or play, his experiences can thus help to prepare him for the more complete manifestation which is to come. Those who stand with their sins forgiven and privileged to call God their father experience none of that craven fear which is cast out by love. Their fear is a dread of grieving the father, of causing a breach, of being separated from their maker. They're not like awkward schoolboys in the presence of a stern and unsympathetic master, afraid to do anything but study and secretly longing for the pedagogue to go away that they might breathe freely again. They're like the children in the presence of a good father, with a wholesome fear inspired by love, taking their troubles to him and loving to have him near, equally ready to work or play in his sight and drawing closer in sympathy with him, either in their labour or their sport. It cannot be too strongly emphasised that men can never recommend themselves to God by humanly devised exercises in asceticism. If we neglect his commands, it will be no excuse that we've kept some irksome rules of our own. If we eat forbidden fruit... It's useless to plead an extenuation that we've denied ourselves fruit that's not forbidden. And if, as is generally the case, the establishment of unwritten laws of repression simply results in harsh judgment and condemnation of others, such legislative labours are very much worse than useless. All experience tends to show that when men try to impose more stringent conditions than God has laid down, they're robbing the foundations of the building to give it a worthless piece of decoration. If in doubt as to the legitimacy of any work or any pleasure, test the matter by this question. Can you ask the Father's blessing or can you give him thanks? And we have to be beware how we condemn another for that in which he gives God thanks. By so widening the basis of our communion, we find opportunity for preparation in all the activities of life, and none has ground for complaining that prosaic duties absorb all the time and present the use of his talents. You may dig or sweep the roads and make it a work for God, and you may preach and make it a work for the devil critic may raise the question, how can digging a few square yards of earth be of any value to God? We answer, how can the most eloquent preaching be of any value to him? In the words of the one of old, if thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he at thy hand? The fact is, we can only give God our hearts, We can exercise our volition just in so far as he has made us free and endeavour to serve him by responding to that invitation which he has given to whosoever will. All faithful work performed as in his sight is simply an index of this gift of our hearts. No human achievement can be so great as to be of any benefit to him Yet no faithful work can be so insignificant as to be overlooked. Wherefore, let us remember our task in life as here, ready to our hands every day, and we can find preparation in all things. By way of conclusion, and to emphasise this thought in a form which will perhaps linger in the memory longer than any prose argument, We'll select a few verses from a poem composed some years ago wherein reason reproves a discontented man and tries to instil the lesson of humility. Were the ambitions of thine early youth of what might seem the noblest type of all? A burning zeal for spreading Christian truth, A ready recognition of a call. And now, has circumstance so bowed thy head Beneath the harsh corrections of her rod? Thy strength so spent in struggling for bread That thou hast almost lost thy faith in God? No napkin round thy gift didst thou entwine, No bushel o'er the light which thou didst bear, Yet both are hidden, though no fault of thine, beneath the crushing load of toil and care. Yet thou remainest uninstructed still, and so thou speakest with presumptuous haste. How can it be a wise creator's will that all my powers thus should run to waste? The answer is... Thou art being taught a truth, so hard to learn, so easy to forget. In heaven's sight thou still art but a youth, a pupil merely, not a teacher yet. How can the Lord have any need of thee, since all things in the universe he owns? What matter if thy powers wasted be, since he could raise up, Servants from the stones. If any special work for thee is found, Think not that the Creator needs thy care. Look at the mass of Mother Earth around. Think what potentialities are there. Men would have lived, the sun still give his light, If thou hadst never come upon the scene. What more art thou in the Creator's sight than countless myriads who might have been? If thou art something more, tis by his grace thou hadst been taught by his afflicting rod and having sinned and suffered, hide thy face, humbled beneath the mighty hand of God. The days of toil which seem so ill to thee, the bitter pain and seeming fruitless strife, have given what at last may prove to be thine only title to eternal life. And in the consummation thou wilt find the hard and wearing struggles of thy part, detracted from the brilliance of thy mind, but gave instead a broken, contrite heart. And thou wilt see the meaning of it then, and even come to bless the chastening rod, which taking that which gives the praise of men, gave that which takes thee to the praise of God. There is alone one field of labour where, Thy great creator hath real need of thee, and even that one honour thou must share with all who have been or can ever be. Not in the work to which the mind aspires, nor in the field where men have mostly striven, the work in which assistance he requires is ruling the volition he has given. In thy heart's preparation thou shalt find thy one monopoly of work. Here are a myriad of entities of humankind, each with one character to mould or mar. If thou art eloquent, drive pride away. Remember, God with energy divine could raise from common elements of clay a million tongues more eloquent than thine. If thou hast strength, tis thee who made thee strong. And what if thou shalt give with pious vow thy strength to him to whom all things belong, some other clay? would do as well as thou. But in the ruling of thine own free will, for in large measure he has made thee free, no other man can that position fill, and God himself requires help from thee. He needeth not thy houses, gold or land, since all thou ownest, he must first impart, and gift of subtle brain or cunning hand, Serve simply as an index of the heart. Give God thy heart, 'tis all that he doth ask, and thine obedience to that one command Will still involve accepting any task within the power. Of thy brain or hand. So be thy burden such as thou can lift, and give to God as he has filled thy store. The widow with her humble farthing gift did what she could, and thou canst do no more. And when thou hast completely conquered pride, content a humble labourer to be. Perchance the doors will be thrown open wide, and God will find a special work for thee. Wilt thou to accept the post of honour then? Too often those who sought to be the head, and wish to figure in the sight of men, shrink from the task, when vanity is dead. Flinch not now at the call of providence. Allow not that reproach to rest on thee, nor shun nor seek the post of prominence, but ever ready, never anxious be. Content to labour in a humble sphere, performing work for God no man can see yet ready in the forefront to appear, and take the place where fools will envy thee. So tread in faithfulness the narrow way, pursue not pleasure, lest thy strength be shaken, pursuit of pleasure oft leads men astray, yet very rarely is she overtaken. But if to thy Creator thou art true, rest then assured he never will forsake thee. Thy path of duty shall thy soul pursue, and happiness unsought will overtake thee. If every work and deed thou wilt perform, as unto God, then thou wilt never stray but pass through life unharmed by mortal storm and strengthened by the battles of the way. Be finally prepared for that great day.